Hi everyone, before today's interview, I just want to let you know about some upcoming live CE courses. First, we have an online-only salon series, a fresh look at the Red Book, reading the Libra Novus with Jungian psychoanalysts, with Daniel Ross, Boris Matthews, and guest Jungian analysts. Next, we have Following Jung's Red Book, an experiential image-making seminar with Mary Doherty, art therapist and Jungian psychoanalyst. Finally, we have a webinar series, The Mirage of Truth, Psychology of Illusion and Self-Deception in Radical Beliefs with Vlado Schultz, Jungian analyst. CEs are available for all of these courses, and if you need CEs in a pinch, you can also check our website for self-study CE courses that you can do in a couple hours. For all of those, just visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks. This is Patricia Martin, and welcome to Jung in the World. During the global pandemic, many therapists took to the online world to deliver therapy. It has raised questions about what teletherapy can and can't do for us. If you're someone who wonders this yourself, joining us today is Gus Zwick, who has been offering Jungian analysis and psychotherapy virtually for several years now and has made himself a student of that process and what it brings to the analysis and what it offers and what pieces you might need to fit in. Gus Zwick is a clinical psychologist, hypnotherapist, and Jungian analyst in private practice in the Chicago area. He is member of the Society of Jungian Analysts and the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. He's also on the editorial board of the Journal of Analytic Psychology and the executive board for the Archive for Research in Archetypal Symbolism. He was co-director of training of the Analyst Training Program and the Clinical Training Program in Analytic Psychotherapy at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. He has published several articles and numerous reviews, and he joins us today to talk about the technologically mediated self, and therapy online. Hello, Gus, and welcome to Jung in the World. Hi, Patricia. Thank you for having me. Well, I the reason I wanted to talk with you today is because you wrote this influential article in the height of the pandemic about psychotherapy via technology. And I'll give you the title, um, and we will also link below the article. Um, The Technologically Mediated Self, Reflections on the Container and the Field of Telecommunications. And in it, you argue that psychoanalysis delivered via technology needed to be understood differently, not as the weak sibling of in-person psychotherapy, but it's something else. What is it? Talk about what makes it um, 
different and maybe even better? Yes, I, um, I've always been kind of interested in uh, technology, one of the kind of nerdy side of myself, kind of the geek. Um, people have said I'm not on the cutting edge, I'm on the bleeding edge. I mentioned in the uh, paper in that. So I was actually uh, kind of into this even before the commercial systems came out. Uh, they, they had private uh, telecommunications programs in the early days, but you had to buy them, you had to get through the firewalls, the patient or the other person, you had to have the same software so it was not easy to do but i was kind of experimenting with that even at that point because this idea of being able to communicate with people at a distance was really important and then i was also a big arguing for it even before covid was coming out to integrate it into the training programs that it was really um, the way people were operating and connecting and a lot of the programs, particularly when they went to monthly models like Chicago did, um, people were coming more from a distance. And so the idea of being able to do supervision analysis and count towards their training requirements. So I was a big proponent of that. I was arguing in Chicago, uh, the other group. I'm a member of the Interregional Society of to count these hours. A certain number of hours could be counted because it helped with people and travel. So I was a big proponent uh, kind of of that even before COVID hit. It was right in the middle with Interregional. There were like really resistance to incorporating it and we were having debates uh arguments around it and so the point you know everybody kept going well it's not in person you know well of course it's not you know in terms of that but if you only think of it as kind of an ersatz in person you know i think you miss something of it that this is a medium that's technologically mediated uh, aspect of the cells, which a lot of people are actually conversing this way. This is the way that they talk to one another and the younger generation, and they're used to it. I was even half joking at that point saying we should require people to do telecommunications because this is what people are used to and people all laughed and everything. And then COVID hit and everybody was doing it. And all the people that were objecting to it in this way, and it's usually yeah, particularly from the unions, but most of all, it's the embodiment. You know, you don't have the bodies in the room and so much was lost. But then again, all those people who would never even try it and were arguing against it, now everybody was kind of doing it. I, I kind of resisted going, nah, 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 nah. I, go, <laughs> I told you so that it was a coming thing, but I had no idea it was going to be coming in that type of uh, 
So, you know, the idea is like, yes, it doesn't have that part, but what does it have? You know, that it's a different way of communicating, particularly uh, the big uh, advantage of it is, you know, operating at a distance that you actually don't have to be in the room with somebody and somebody can still have a connection with you. So if there are somebody you are reaching out to, particularly in supervision, this was like if you really wanted to go to an expert on something or like Don Kelshed for drama, right, and not able to kind of fly in, do a session and do everything, all of a sudden this was accessible. So it had certain things about it. And from my early work, I had begun to realize it was really a different uh, medium knowing the person. Usually I never got started on telecommunications, but I, we were in person and then we would do sessions periodically. I began to notice that there were sometimes was different things that they began talking about something usually much more difficult things in terms of like maybe aggression, fantasies, sexual fantasies, where they actually felt safer with the distance. And that was a big part. This is what I'm getting at with the technologically mediated self. Very few of the people when we went to it actually became more inhibited. That wasn't my experience in talking to colleagues that anybody like got more closed off because of it. It actually, you either got kind of the in-person self or you actually get a superset of that in-person self, uh, like able to do something that they weren't able to do in person. So that was a part, I think there is some advantage to it. Uh, the being at a distance and, you know, the exact thing that most people criticize about it. I think it's, it's also crown and not just its curse. That really stood out in your article because that was counterintuitive for me. I, uh, I study the digital culture and find that it tends to be very performative. Performative, so- yes, I noticed you used that word. Yeah. Right. And so I I thought, well, if someone is feeling a greater sense of openness, and that's what you have observed, then the technology is forming a different kind of container. And maybe this is a good place to explain what we mean and what Jung meant by the container. And then we can apply it to the virtual world, uh, you know, the digital world. That w- I, help us out with that. Yes, yes. The uh, I had a paper it's called "From Frame Through Holding to Container," where I was trying to take these are the three major tropes that have entered our psychoanalytic jargon, you know, and it's usually considered the frame. I almost think of the frame as much more like the hard wiring. So after this hundred-some-plus years of analysis, we have, oh, the frame consists of being at the same time, being in the same office, charging the fees, Um, uh, that you're interacting, we don't touch one another, uh, maybe free association, 
these all became parts of the frame and the standard way of doing psychoanalysis. And, uh, then Winnicott kind of came along and he really began talking about like holding environments. And it became clear that for certain kinds of people, that rigid frame actually didn't work. You had to begin to make some changes to it, like be open to taking phone calls or outside of the the set sessions because the anxiety was so great. So that there were changes in the frame. And then Jung really talked about kind of the notion of a container being a much more symbolic. I've compared it to the way that he describes libido itself is that it moves in a spectrum from the infrared, which is the instinct and body level, into the ultraviolet, which is much more the spiritual, archetypal, mental, that it's not material. And I thought of the sort of frame moving to container in that same dimension. Yes, this is the frame we've decided upon, but actually the symbolic thing and the way people are interacting creates its own container that actually might override the frame. You know, could you do analysis in a foxhole, right? You know, with we don't have that the safe space and everything. And yes, you could have a very deep interaction and connection with somebody at the analytic level kind of at that. So Jung's notion and this beautiful paper by uh, the Vaspene Klaus on the Weld Seal Vessel by Newman um, is he refers to it, it's not just the thing that holds the process, it's actually the process itself. So the way that we're interacting actually becomes a bit of the container for the work. And one of the things related to this with telecommunication, so it began to change this whole thing of the analyst being in charge of the frame. You had, and the patient had to adapt to it. Like, oh yes, you have to come at this time. You're going to be charged. You're going to be doing this. All of a sudden, with telecommunications, it began to be what we call co-created. Like, unless you were going to force that on somebody and say, you have to do it at the same place in your office at the same time. But that's not what was happening during COVID, right? Because some people couldn't do that, and they were doing it from home, and there was other people around. So you had people kind of, I had a number of people doing it from their car because it was the only place they could. I think the one thing we have to stand by is confidentiality. Like if they're doing it in a coffee shop and they're talking, I don't feel comfortable with that uh, around that. So I might draw a limit on that. But otherwise, or people have done it walking through the park and holding up their phone around it, which was like, those were not options in the uh, old model. So I think the idea of changing it from a set frame to a co-created element, which I think of more symbolically as a container for the work in which we both kind of create the circumstances by which we're going to operate. So this co-creative idea, as I listened to you talk, it struck me that 
I was really listening to understand you. And I was recruiting everything I had, all of my energies, to being present to what you're explaining to me. Because it's, like I said earlier, some of this is counterintuitive. Your observations are are very cutting edge. And is that part of what makes the virtual container um, a, a vessel for more openness. Uh, You talk about this idea of people really being present and people, you know, feeling like they are in the moment. In other words, we're recruiting a lot of energy to come into this and a lot of will to come into these sessions virtually. Is that part of the scene here? Oh, yeah. I think that's what I was, you know, the literature was just filled with the negatives about it. The the big standard one was uh, Jillian uh, Isaac Russell. She had uh, written a book, Screen Relations, and it was really pretty negative towards it, advising against it and the argument, the resistances I was running into with analysts in terms of, you know, this is the way it's always been done, you know, around it. So, I was really trying to highlight something to take the other stand. You know, of course, it has its limitations. And the imaginal body, as we'll talk about, is not the same as the being in the room together. But it's not that it's totally devoid of contact or affecting the body uh, in this way. And so that's what I was trying to argue. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And particularly as we're kind of coming out of COVID and the requirement sort of, you know, for this, because now the world has changed, right? Now we're in definitely in the very least a hybrid model, you know, in terms of where that is. And I think the guidelines for analysis are going to change around that, that it's like, oh, even if you're seeing somebody in person, all of a sudden, sometimes they're going to want to do telecommunications. And again, the conscious reason, oh, I'm running behind or I'm late or it'll be easier. But now we'll have to include, are there other motivations to avoid something in person when you move to the telecommunications, which in, I think, having both would be a, a better model than just one or the other. Oh, so you are a proponent of hybrid. Um, and I think you say that in your article, that there is virtue in quarterly or, you know, some string of in-person meetings. Is that still your stance? It's uh, if, you know, one can do that, I think it's much better. The idea was, you know, like the transference and the feelings, the relationship were going to be diluted in telecommunications. Uh, actually, what I've seen and what Rossler in one of his articles talked about is an intensification loop. So when you're working this way, and I don't think all of the things in transferring is, is neglected or the body, but when you do get the bodies in the room, this three-dimensional aspect and the reality of the person, all the work that you've done, I think you get the transference. Like 
exponentially that it was like laying in wait sort of, you know, for the bodies to be in the room. So all that work then kind of, you know, comes in and because now all those action potentials are there. Yes, you can, all the things you were talking about, yes, they can be enacted in that space. So I think it functions that way too. So sometimes it's not possible. You might be working with somebody like from a different country uh, around that to do a, a more hybrid thing. But I, I think it would be the preferred model. You also uh, surprised me in your article about the mind-body connection as it appears in the virtual space. That it's not something I expected. I mean, we, we're all talking heads on Zoom, right? So, so I, I, I would really like to just lean into this a little bit, this mind-body connection um, in the virtual container. Yeah, yeah the, it's really the important part. I became really aware of it in the early years before the Skype and FaceTime things when we were using these early versions. And I leaned forward to get a notepad and the person backed away. All right. And the screen, it was like, oh, okay, something different's happening here, right? Because I had moved up this way and that personal space was still kind of, you know, clearly defined, right? So I was thinking away from a Jungian perspective, you know, how do we get this? We, we know that the body can be affected right through the imagination, right? You watch a horror movie. It's over there, and it's not real, and Freddy Krueger is not in the room with you, right? But you have all of the horror and the body and the anxiety and the reactions, right, come up in the body. So Jung's talking about this was the notion of what he called subtle body, right? And my kind of operational definition of that is like a body the self in imagination that totally responds like you would in the real world. Like, you know, people doing the act of imagination, if people are familiar with that, like you're entering into imaginal space and, oh, this person is coming and you flip them over and do that. Jung say, no, 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 that's not act of imagination, that's fantasy. It's like, you know, to feel like yourself and how you might react and have the adrenaline and the anxiety. This becomes closer to what he's talking about, subtle body, but in the imagination. And this subtle body, if you think of psyche and matter and psyche and spirit, is right at the interface of matter into what he called the psychoid realm where you can't tell if it's psyche or if it's matter, right? So this subtle body is right at this interface between where it goes into matter. And because of that, it's deeply unconscious, right? We can't really kind of get into it. But the idea that, you know, that we could talk about something at a distance and that the body could be involved without the body being in the room. There is kind of no doubt to me uh, around that. 
uh, example, somebody just returned to analysis uh, after being years apart, was dealing with the uh, suicide of his son. And I sort of did a synopsis of our early work, right? Well, we know from our early work, and then he began, he said, okay, yep, I know we're in it because he began sweating. I could see the blood rushing to his face and that we were touching in these areas, right? There was an example, kind of, you know, I think of the subtle body and the work. It's like the imagination talking about something can definitely bring the body into play. And I think with telecommunications, you have to actually be more aware of that, like having the where you feel that in your body, where is that kind of going on? Because we only really have the uh, facial part. We don't have the lower body where we could see maybe the psychoactive leg, right? That's the usual telltale one where the leg starts bouncing and you could bring attention to that. It's like, okay, what's that about, you know, uh, around that. So you have to actually be more aware on telecommunications to bring it in. And so much of it is centered on the face. We might put a, might, might put a camera below the surface, but I'm not sure people are always wearing pants or, uh, you know, when they're in this session. It could get a little salacious. <laughs> but but wait a minute. Now this 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 is a point of interest here. Is when we're dealing with Zoom, let's say, there's my face and there's your face. If I go into analysis and I enter the consultation room, I see you, but I don't see myself. Is there something in that too that makes for an important difference in if if what I'm undertaking is a deep examination of trauma or um, you know some disorder, some anxiety? Is there some kind of healing that gets delivered or m- more candor gets delivered because I can see myself and you? Yeah. That's, again, a difference, right? I've noticed some people will block that out, that they don't want to do it. I have one, you know, patient that comes in, you can always, it's like the mirror, right? All of a sudden she sees herself and she's moving her hair kind of, you know, (laughs) around that. So it is an additional part, like you get actually... You know, you may, when something is going on, your attention might shift over. It's usually in a smaller, you know, very few people put it on like a gallery view where the two of you are side by side. It's usually in that smaller, always the option for that. But I think that's additional information that you get an awareness of actually how you might be coming across, you know, maybe flat. Maybe something you notice in your face that you wouldn't have been able to see because you don't have that information. So I think it's actually another positive kind of, you know, information that this allows that's not in the in-person setting. 
You write at one point that the desire to connect is so strong. This is a quote. Quote, the desire to connect is so strong that we can overcome the limitations of cyber sessions. And I, I could be reading too much into this, Gus, but it made me wonder, does the psyche strive for its healing? Does it, is it, does it have its own willing suspension of disbelief? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting notion. I, what I was trying to get at there is like that, uh, the idea too of neuroplasticity. One of the arguments was like Zoom, you know, you don't have the eye contact, right? Because you're looking at the screen and the camera is above it. So the eye contact is always a little off. And some people said, for that reason, I would never do it because that is so important. But the idea and that the urge for connection, and this is much more an object relations standpoint, interpersonal relationships, there's a longing for connection. So give the psyche an opportunity, right? Which telecommunications might be. And it it will find its own workarounds to actually make what it needs to happen, to make you become the analyst and use the medium in the way. I've begun to think, you know, people talk about like, Psyche and technology is opposite. So psyche is animated and alive. Soul and technology is dead and soulless and mechanical. Well, I hate to break it to them, but technology is, came out of psyche, right? I tend to think of, and particularly telecommunications, as psyche's attempt to extend itself at a distance. That one of its purposes is to utilize technology and, and the brain and science to be able to extend itself more into the universe rather than, oh, it's a, like some bastard byproduct kind of, you know, and science is, is carries the shadow and the evil running into that with like, AI now, too. You know, uh, Gus, that is a really forward-looking theory. Can I call that a theory, that psyche is extending itself? That uh, kind of brings me to this other surprising point that you make, is that actually the technology facilitates imaginal play space. And... I, I, I really had to sit down and think about that. How, how so? It's, you know, that was an interesting part because this, like Isaac Russell in her book on screen relations, she said, oh, this staring at the screen kind of subverts reverie and getting into the space. And I may talk about kind of, you know, the role of reverie. And, and I was thinking it was like, well, that's because you've got this negative attitude towards the technology, right? Uh, I'm saying if the imagination can be open and it needs to be with the telecommunications, if you're in it and these people are just like, oh, shit, 
you know, we've we're relegated to doing this type of thing and the better thing would to be in this space, you're not going to open up this imaginative place. So this uh, theorist Agden uses this word like dreaming, you know, that we're trying to get into meaning able to do psychological work. That's what we're trying to open up, you know, in uh, analysis. I, I teach my supervisees of like they're paying attention to the person and hearing them, but they're also paying attention to what's going on in their body and what particularly is coming up in their mind. And that use of the imagination, uh, I think actually could be facilitated by this more because it has a dreamlike quality. You're not there. It's not the person. It's like this phantom through these electrons around that. I think of that early time, you know, I was into the computers and before we had the uh, MPG files and, you know, the uh, movie files. And I was at the first uh, c consumer conference where we had the static picture where we all uh, were used to seeing, and then all of a sudden it began to move, right? It was like, you know, a movie, and it was like, I dare to say, numinous. It was like for all the geeks in the audience, like, oh, my God, that's, you know, amazing. And telecommunication is like taking that a step further in terms of that. But that dreamlike quality, I think, can be enhanced in so there are a couple things in terms of like trying to make people more aware of that and what it is. I sometimes encourage people to use headphones like in a teaching situation so that it feels like it's coming inside, like you're hearing the voices as the inner experience kind of rather out there. And that increases more of the proximity and nearness. Uh, around it. There's another part in there that I, I brought in in terms of like quantum fields to maybe another way to open up the imagination um, to, to this type of, you know, viewing what it is that you're doing because uh, you have to bring the imagination much more into this type of process. Yes, I think you when you talk about the quantum nature of analysis done virtually, uh, I, I even have a quote from your article. You say, quote, deep interconnectedness and mutual interdependence in quantum systems is what you see applicable here. And, you know, quantum is one of those words that has gotten overpopularized, misused, misapplied. So let's just right now, when you say quantum, Gus, what, what do you mean by it? Well, first of all, I was trying to play on that popular notion of quantum, you know, in terms of bringing it in of like, oh, we're using technology and what we're seeing are electrons and not really the person, right, around it. But the idea in the quantum, particularly the idea of non-locality, right, of what's opening up, and I think why even Jungian psychology is becoming more popular, because it's fitting, 
I think Jung anticipated he was before his time with the ideas of synchronicity of a causal uh, relation, something not happening causally. And so by quantum, I was really trying to emphasize that things can kind of happen uh, that we have this spooky action at a distance, right? That these two particles that are in different places actually begin to change, but there's you can't even posit a cause of how they're connected. So the quantum has this a-causal. I was really trying to tap into the imagination. For some people, that scientific thing, to think of it, it as like a quantum uh, interchange actually opens their imagination where that you could affect things at a distance. This paper that I re- uh, referenced to is such a beautiful paper by Mansfield and Spiegelman where they're talking about the physics of the transference situation. And so it was kind of almost tongue-in-cheek to of kind of, you know, bringing that in. Like, yeah, if you think about it this way, if you think about the imagination, you may open up the field to make this more of a container. If you start the other argument that I had was like the instability of it, which usually drives people crazy, right? Like, oh, shit, if that didn't happen, we'd have a real analysis here. But because it's unstable, it's much more reactive to actually emotional fields. I have not met any analyst that I've talked to about this that hasn't had the experience that you're at a key moment, the emotion is great, or an insight is happening, and the damn thing breaks down, right? The picture shuts off, the sound goes away, the disconnection uh, signal lost uh, doesn't occur. And it's like, okay, that's more than probability, right? Because of the unstable nature, we brought in another, uh, like a Ouija board. It's like, you know, it's something that's reactive that we can say, oh, let's go back to that. Maybe there's something really not wanting us to make that more conscious. Let's fight our way back kind of through that. And then you make the feel much more of a container as opposed to, uh, Again, this thing has interrupted the work we really need to do. It's so interesting because uh, I, I too, was taken by that whole idea that the virtual realm, the digital delivery system is uh, unpredictable, but that's its own uh, synchronicity. Synchronicity opens it up. Yes. And uh, uh, just a few days ago, I, I was interviewing someone who had a weak internet connection. And again, I was like, oh, gosh, in my mind, I was thinking, this is terrible. He keeps dropping out. And when I listened to it again, I realized that he had made his point. And the the three sentences I lost after that were really just embellishment. They weren't. And so... As I listened to it, he sounded really, you know, terse and and, and in in a good way. You know, he was he was very clipped and made sharp points. And I thought this worked out great. 
Yes. Yeah, but that's what I mean, as opposed to seeing it immediately as a problem. Can it be insolded into the experience? And the same thing with the happenings, which, again, when you're in your office, your spouse or your child is not going to wander in or your dog or something like that. Like, you know, but noticing, oh, the spouse wandered in right as we were talking about this key thing in your relationship, right? Like almost like those sort of, you know, drawn. These things can underline the work and help deepen it as opposed to just seeing them as interferences if you if you can hold them correctly. And not to say there aren't true glitches and screw-ups and the internet is down kind of, you know, one day you don't want to read field kind of, you know, uh, interpretations into that. But some of them are, you know, and if you unfold them into the field, I think they actually have the potential for deepening the work, not disrupting it. And, and I think this is really the spirit of your article is that we live, we all live in this world now this hybrid world, analysts and analysands alike. And technology is an opportunity and don't make it a problem. Yeah, try to see that it's there for a purpose, like that notion of psyche, you know, sort of trying to extend itself as opposed to, you know, that, that, that was part of the problem you know, that I was running into one of the arguments, you know, in the Red Book, Young Ducks, about the spirit of the times versus the spirit of the depths, right? And my opponents were arguing, oh, it's the spirit of the depths and the way that it was done, you know, kind of, you know, before and the richness of that and the spirit of the times and this is so and people are on their devices and, you know, there's no depth and it's like that. But it, I, I don't think that that's the right that we should look at it. We should look at how the spirit of the times can tap into the spirit of the depths. Just because it's old doesn't mean that it's actually much more meaningful. Some of the people that I talk to, I uh, you'd say to them, how's that quill working out for you? You know? <laughs> right. How's that buggy whip? It's like. <laughs> we've, we've moved on, right? <laughs> right? You know, it's like typewriters, computers, right? You're you're not staying with those things. Like they're not just bad things. They are part of the individuation, if you will, of the collective. Well, I I also think that what you're saying here today, Gus, is is tremendously exciting in that. If I, you know, if I did just a cursory scan of some of the great writers and thinkers who came after Jung, who studied Jung, studied with Jung, some of them, some of them um, touched the collective profoundly because they were able to take Jung's experiments and Jung's, you know, very forward-looking in many cases, avant-garde thinking that then became a little more archival, if you will, 
or became doctrine. And they were able to thrust it into the future in a way that helped the collective see the energy in these ideas and see its relevance to them in the present and have a vision, have a different vision for their healing for the future. And I think that's what you're advocating here. Yeah. Well, that it can be there, but not the automatic. Yes, it's got its problems and their shadow involvement, but there's this immediate reaction to focus on that instead of like holding it. It may have a purpose, right? And what is that? How is it trying to further psyche? I mean, I find it hard to believe, you know, look at young Winnie did all the alchemy work on all the note cards and the concordances and he's writing down, right? You know, oh, the snake here appears in this and this and this, and then he's drawing references. Don't tell me that he wouldn't use a database and punch that in or use AI and the AI could, could find the common thing extract the essence of all of those things i can't believe that he wouldn't do that you know around that rather than by this you know hand in the old way right he it, he would have been a man of this times i would really think so that's what i mean i don't think he uh, diminished that part he had the two sides right the two personalities but as i say we shouldn't keep them disparate you know, it's like the depths. How do we find the depths in the spirit of the times? And that's a beautiful thought for us to end on. How do we find the depths in the spirit of the times? And thanks for leading us there today, Gus Wick. Oh, thanks. You could tell it. My, I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and I thoroughly enjoyed having you uh, on the podcast today. Oh, great. Thanks so much for having me, Patricia. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above. Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Boris Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Wei Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.